Kev McIntyre. Hey, my name is Adrian Pope. And today we're going to be talking about the culture war. Who is winning the culture war, Adrian? Do you think uh, liberals or conservatives are currently in the lead in the culture war? Well, I think the uh, culture war is probably going to be an ongoing thing in American politics, uh, but the Democrats and far left have clearly gotten a bunch of victories uh, this week alone, just with the Supreme Court uh, knocking down two uh, Trump administration efforts to uh, uh, protect their own form of identity politics. Uh, uh, and the first one is that for, uh, gays and trans can't be fired just for being gay and trans. So uh, Roberts and uh, Gorsuch uh, went with the Democrats on that case. Uh, we talked about that a little bit in the previous podcast. Uh, but the second issue this week is uh, the uh, Supreme Court knocked down the Trump administration's efforts to block or stop or quit the DACA program. So um, the DACA program allowed for... Um, uh, so children dreamers. Of, yeah, dreamers. Uh, the children of illegal immigrants who were brought here, you know, weren't born in America, aren't American citizens, but were brought here as kids and, uh, you know, kind of bringing them into the system of the country they grew up in. Um, and basically, uh, these are huge wins for the Democrats simply because the Trump administration uh, failed at even trying to effectively uh, go against them. So Roberts, it was a 5-4 decision for the DACA case with uh, John Roberts going against the uh, Republican, I guess, uh, way of looking at it. Uh, yeah, and it's funny too, because really Roberts, like his whole rationale was that the Trump administration is basically being lazy more than anything else. They don't have yeah. good legal arguments. And they're like, quite frankly, the lawyers kind of arguing their cases are using uh, kind of like illegitimate arguments and uh like more you know like roberts is kind of conservative leaning um and even with gorsuch on some of these like they're republican leaning they're conservative leaning you you know they would like to kind of vote on their own team so to speak but just the you know uh supreme court justices because you know they're they're kind of insulated from polit the day-to-day -day political battles they can kind of mm -hmm. take a more long-term nuanced view and a lot of you know the supreme court uh they want to kind of protect their legacy they don't want to um kind of tarnish the the whole legacy of, of their own institution because there's so few of them and it's lifetime appointments so especially roberts roberts has kind of done a lot of surprising uh kind of swing votes uh, I guess most notably, you could say about kind of protecting Obamacare, and I've see, I've read some articles talking about how Roberts kind of does he kind of does have his finger on the pulse of American sentiment, and some of these issues that he has been the the kind of like uh, swing vote on, kind of pushing uh, decisions over to the liberal interpretation. It really is. Uh, Roberts basically looking at issues and saying like 75% of Americans believe with the more liberal aspect of an argument. And I think that's kind of, what, do you, what do you think about that? Do you think that's uh, intelligent or political or like what do you, what do you think? How do you uh, feel about Roberts kind of track record? Well, I think that's interesting because like you said, he's obviously a conservative leaning uh, guy. He was put on the court specifically and hired by uh, George W. Bush because of that reason, but he's he's also not like uh, he's not just an ideologue. Um, I mean, with the DACA case, he basically said that the Supreme Court's job is uh, not to validate what the executive branch wants to do. In this case, the Trump administration tried to just end DACA on their own, and he basically pointed out that that's not how our government works. DACA was 
passed by Congress. It's on the law books. It's a legitimate law. So the executive government or yeah, the executive branch can't just cut it. And he pointed out that's not how our government works. Uh, and in this case, he actually kind of uh, criticized uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Kavanaugh for his interpretation of the law saying, you know, because he all the people who dissented with this uh, majority opinion had to basically explain why they thought the Trump administration could basically unilaterally end what is essentially a law passed by Congress, pat you know, and approved by uh, Obama. So the the exact, I mean, this is a clear case of uh, the separations of power, right? If the Trump administration really wants to cut DACA, he's got to go to the other branch that passed it and convince them to either reform it, amend it, or cut it themselves. Um, so that's an interesting kind of case here. And, and with the other example for the previous mentioned case about the, uh, the fact that private industries and businesses can't just fire gay and trans people just for being gay and trans, uh, you know, he and uh, Gorsuch had the same kind of opinion. They said if like, you know, if you just read the law as it is, and in, in that particular case, they talked about the um, you know, previous laws that say you can't discriminate in, in businesses on terms of, uh, uh, you know, all these protected classes of people, you know, like your nationality, your gender, your race, and the word, and, and, you know, the word in there that they use is you can't discriminate people based on their sex. So if you just talk about that word in, you know, the Constitution, uh, how can you deny uh, that there's no legal justification for being able to fire someone just for being gay and trans. So again, you know, you have the conservatives on the Supreme Court, other than Gorsuch and uh, uh, Roberts, who are basically making up a justification for why they thought they could go against the clear wording of the Constitution and allow businesses to just arbitrarily discriminate against people uh, for one of the, you know, attributes that people have, which, you know, Roberts and Gorsuch pointed out is, you know, sex is a protected class under the Constitution. So there was no yeah. basis for it. And it's kind of ironic with Clarence Thomas, you know, basically being the beneficiary of earlier arguments in the Supreme Court, whether black people could be fired, you know, a lot of Supreme Court cases on like uh, racial well, and rights, in a lot you know? of well, yeah, in a lot of the country, when Clarence Thomas was young, a black man couldn't marry a white woman. Uh, that was a law on the books in a number of states, you know, predominantly in the South, but around the country. And he himself is married to a, uh, a white woman. And, you know, that was a kind of uh, marriage that at one point was uh, seen as illegal and immoral for whatever reason. And, you know, of course, yeah. today we know it's just ridiculous and a completely unfair and ridiculous law. And, you know, thank goodness right. that, you know, previous courts overturned it. Uh, now, here's another thought, too. I read this in a... Uh, I, I forget where I read it, but it was basically talking about how um, it's ironic or maybe interesting to note how it's usually conservative Supreme Court justices that are kind of the swing vote and are willing to vote on kind of more the liberal interpretation, much more than it is liberal judges. And it's interesting to talk about why that is, because, I mean, famously, Kennedy... Uh, you know, now John Roberts, uh, there's more... Um, there's more of an onus on him to kind of vote a certain way and maybe vote the liberal way on issues that might impact the Supreme Court's um, legacy in negative ways. But before him, it was really Kennedy was always called kind of considered the, uh, the swing vote. Uh, and he voted mm -hmm. on liberal issues, particularly on uh, a lot of these gay cases. I think uh, Kennedy was previously um, the, the swing vote there. And then, you know, famously, uh, George H.W. Bush kind of publicly regretted his appointment of, uh, David Souter because, uh, mm -hmm. Souter was kind of, uh, 
of, uh, you know, oftentimes that swing vote kind of flip into the other side of the aisle. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it is that conservatives kind of are more likely to uh, be the swing vote? Do you think it's that conservatives are more open-minded or do you think it's just that maybe conservative policy and the lawsuits that conservative-minded people bring up maybe are not so uh, constitutionally legit or morally or ethically correct? Well, I think that's an interesting question. Um, And you have to look at the kinds of people Republican presidents typically nominate to the court. And, you know, you see this with Trump. Certainly, you know, he's given a list of potential people that, you know, are Republican Party, conservative movement, uh, you know, like federalist party. uh, Yeah. Yeah. People like. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, they have all these people they already have who they they know, you know, check all these blocks. Right. So and there's another issue where a lot of Supreme Court justices and lawyers who, you know, aspire to the court, you know, say straight up, I am a traditionalist or I take the Constitution verbatim. And like, you know, they promised beforehand, I am not going to put any of my um, prejudices or ideas like I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to rule the government from the bench, as they say. I'm not going to legislate from the bench. Uh, I believe only in what the law itself says. So, I mean, when you get these people, sometimes uh, they look at a case that, like, the the verbatim writing of the law just doesn't even make sense in that particular case. And, and you've seen that throughout this country's history. Uh, you know, all of the famous cases that overturn, you know, very you know, racist or sexist uh, kind of issues. I mean, they just, at some point, even a traditionalist says, well, the intent of this law, for whatever reason, just can't possibly pass muster today, right? And they'll yeah, overturn no, you know, it, or they'll the change kind of, the interpretation. Right, the quintessential example is that the Constitution says that, uh, when it's talking about the president, always says he. <laughs> you know, like, if, mm-hmm. you're, if you're a strict constitutionalist, only going by the word of the Constitution, I mean, like, right there, it's apparent that a woman cannot be elected president, you know? So, I mean, if you're oh, really yeah. a strict constitutionalist... <laughs> Uh, you know, is that a battle you want to fight on your strict constitutionalist, uh, you know, hilltop? Well, yeah, and that's a good point, too, if you look at the Senate and the House of Representatives, if they use that same he pronoun, because, I mean, today you can't imagine, uh, for example, they, you know, them refusing to give the oath to a certain congressman. <laughs> but, right. yeah. Um, yeah, so that's kind of an interesting idea. Now, what do you think about the, it's kind of a pejorative term when you get called an activist judge, and a lot of people only really use it, a lot of conservatives use it as liberal judges, um, but, I mean, at a certain point, I mean, aren't conservative justices just as likely or uh, uh, just as functionally an activist judge? Well, yeah, and that's a kind of interesting thing because every time they, you know, usually pretty much every Supreme Court justice will write why they, you know, vote the way they do. And there are interesting ways to, like, look into it and see what they think over time. But um, I think since the Republican Party nominates people who say they're traditionalists or constitution literalists, they're very less likely to try to legislate from the bench. Um, although that's not to say they don't also, you know, do it sometimes like when they tried, uh, they decided to, you know, hear arguments against Obamacare and then some of them, you know, decided that they could try to overturn this law from the bench. And it was, you know, John Roberts was that five, four, uh, uh, tie breaking decision that kept Obamacare, you know, allowing the explanation 
to go forward that you know this is really an interstate commerce kind of issue and therefore in the purview of congress and therefore a constitutional law so i mean in that case i think you could make and you know all these cases involve some luring luring right um, but I assume you could probably make the case that that would have been an effort for conservative justices to try to cut down a democratic policy because they didn't like it for whatever reason. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because, like, let's say you're a conservative judge and you hate all these rulings that go against the kind of conservative viewpoint. I mean, at a certain point, um, if you routinely are in the minority of the Supreme Court losing all of these cases, uh, at a certain point, you're... I guess you could kind of be an activist judge, right? If you, if you, if, let's say somebody voted, you know, in the minority just repeatedly throughout their entire career and is just always being disagreed with with the other members, you know, at a certain point, like, I guess you can say something about their career, you know, always being, uh, always dissenting from the majority view. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, and then if you put it, I mean, it's kind of like proving the negative in a way, I guess. But like if you're the, a dissenting viewer, right, and the majority of the Supreme Court, you know, maybe it's a 6-3 or a 7-2 decision. Like, aren't you being an activist by doing something that so many other people in the court see as unconstitutional or constitutional? And you're kind of an activist in your own way trying to reverse that or prove that, you know, something else should be done instead. Mm hmm. I don't know if that's the best argument or not, but yeah, it's, <laughs> I, it's all a matter of pers it's all a matter of perspective, right? right? So, I mean, it's the kind of thing that like when a Democrat gets their way or when the the left gets their way, it's uh, just good uh, good uh, arbitration of what's constitutional and what's not. And if they don't get their way, you know, oh, this is judicial activism, and it's just it, it's the complete you know opposite for the Republicans, right? When they get their way, this is just a good decision that makes sense based on the law and reading of the Constitution, whereas if they don't right. get their way, then certainly it's activism, uh, um, activism on, the, on the bench. Although certainly with a lot of conservative issues, whether it's like um, guns or abortion, you know, you get a lot of those kind of Federalist approved justices that are saying like ahead of time, you know, I'm, I'm against abortion, I'm totally pro-guns. You know, if you're saying all of these things, and, uh, you know, the Supreme Court, like the kind of like existing precedent and law of the land as decided by, you know, past Supreme Courts, uh, certainly you're kind of an activist judge then if your your whole idea is you're going to undo what the Supreme Court has already kind of maintained for decades on abortion. Uh, you know, you're I don't know if you're really a strict constitutionalist. At that point. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, it's interesting, too, if you think about it, like the Constitution is only 4,543 words, including the amendments, right? So, I mean, if it, especially with these conservatives, if you just take the Constitution by itself as like the supreme uh, reason uh, and justification for anything any legislature wants to do over 400, 500, however long our country lasts, you know, you could make the case that like some of these documents or even laws passed 100 or 50 years ago are simply too vague, especially in their own time, let alone having the same um, meaning and application uh, 50, 100, 200 years later, right? So the Constitution yeah. was written in the in the 17 uh 80s right so to to say that that document is so complete that it could you, you know you could derive uh what is legal and what's constitutional based on things that the founding fathers couldn't have comprehended 
for example, like technological advance or industrialization or just how the world changes over time, right? The idea that <laughs> yeah. if you took like, such like a should, strict... Should all of our laws on Bitcoin and cyber currencies <laughs> be dependent yeah. on what people wrote down in the 1780s? Well, I mean, it's like the same thing with the internet, right? You have the FCC that was, uh, you know, legislated in existence after we invented things like radio and then TV and then cable, right? But like, then you have the internet. So, I mean, do the laws that take place and involve radio, you know, public sponsorship of radio, you know, that first started coming online in the 20s and 30s, like, is are those laws meant to apply to, uh, let's say, the internet or cryptocurrencies, right? right? Same thing with treasury law and, uh, you know, financial uh, legislation over the years, like how do you apply that to, uh, you know, uh, tax havens, right? I mean, you could try to make the case that the Constitution can help explain that or how to legislate or what the meaning is. You can even use laws from 100 years ago, which oftentimes, you know, a lot of laws used in a case might be 10, 20, 50 years old, right? So, I mean, to some degree, if you are not an activist, I mean, to what degree are you just stuck in the past, right? Yeah, and we've talked about this before, but I'm a big believer in probably rewriting the Constitution, right? Mm -hmm. We talked about in the past how Thomas Jefferson, you know, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, big time founding father, a lot of conservatives look to on, you know, and how to interpret contemporary issues based on what he was writing and thinking. Uh, but, you know, a lot of those strict constitutionalists kind of omit the parts where, uh, Jefferson was saying every 19 years, America should rewrite the Constitution because it's a whole new generation with all new issues and thoughts and uh, kind of evolutionary uh, like adaptations to the government and theory and things like that. And I'm a big believer in that because, I mean, you look at the Second Amendment, right? How long, you know, we're still arguing about the Second Amendment now. Why don't we rewrite the Second Amendment to make it clear once and for all one way or the other, right? Why do we have to have this vague... Uh, amendment that we're always arguing about and never just clear it up, you know, because now with the Second Amendment, we're basically just fighting over like, you know, if you go back to the 1800s, right, the North and in in big industrial cities had a lot of gun control and the South, they didn't have any because they were always worried about a uh, slave revolt. So a lot of white people had to be armed at all times, you know, to go around and fight off any uh, rebellion slaves who wanted to kill all white people they saw. So obviously, you know, if we're arguing about these interpretations based on past precedents in the North or the South, which were entirely different gun cultures, like, why don't we clear that up, you know? And then you even read the Second Amendment and it's like a well-regulated uh, militia, right? So what is well-regulated about our current gun law? And what is militia-esque about our uh, weekly and monthly mass murders, you know? So, like, if you're a strict constitutionalist, how do you just ignore the term well-regulated and then the word militia, which doesn't really mean that just anybody on the street can have a bazooka or, a, an, a, like, an attack helicopter if they want, right, to fight off the government. Um, yeah. You know, so it's like, why don't we clear this up? Um, we're always having these culture war battles. And granted, like, when we do clear it up, one side will <laughs> lose out. And I don't know, I, you know, but maybe it's that idea of like every 19 years, let's adapt, you know, let's rewrite the Constitution. Um, granted, you know, are we so polarized now that there's no incentive to compromise on a new Constitution? Whereas obviously, like in the 
you know, when we just started making a new country and we realized that the uh, Articles of Confederation were failing us, you know, and we had to do something. And even then, all of the uh, framers of the Constitution, right, they locked themselves in a room, didn't tell anybody what they were doing, came to an agreement amongst themselves, a small, you know, relatively small group of people representing the entire country, and then said, like, only nine states have to ratify this of 13 or whatever, and then, it's, then everyone has to follow it, you know. So, I mean, like, really, even if you're looking at the Constitution, it's a relatively arbitrary document that, yeah, we, we hold up and, uh, you know, glorify today, but... You know, even then, like how many compromises in the Constitution, like the stuff about like three fifths slave votes and things like that, like how many things were just compromises that these uh, very, um, very uh, fallible men basically made compromises with to get out of the room, right? They had the windows shut, they were hot, they were miserable and arguing for like two months or whatever. And at the end of it, right, they just wanted to get it done and, you know, you know, say, hey, I'm done. Let's get out of this room. Let's stop arguing. Let's go back to our states, you know? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, that's all true. Um, and, and some of that, you know, the conclusion you can make from that, at least on the Republican side of looking at the Supreme Court, is like, you know, do we have to make a new Supreme or sorry, a, a new constitutional amendment for every big issue? And then, like, how would the government function if we literally have to rewrite the Constitution every time we want to reinterpret how a law is. Um, and then you could also make the kind of conclusion that if you think that the Constitution is so, you should take it so literally, well, then why are we as a society beholden to this group of, like, uh, uh, founding fathers who lived, uh, you know, 200 plus years ago? Uh, yeah. That's kind of a weird conclusion to say that they knew, you know, the, the document they made is so... Uh, perfect, uh, which we know is not true because it's been amended multiple times, 27 times, but <laughs> yeah. that it's so perfect that we need to abide by it in perpetuity, right? And that makes no sense. Right. And, and in many ways, it's like the Bible. You know, people say we need to live our lives according to the Bible and all of our laws should be derived from the Bible anyway. But the Bible is yeah. filled with arbitrary things that no longer make sense, right? Like eating pork, you know, like we have refrigeration now that you know, pork is no longer poisonous and filled with worms that we, we have to warn people not to eat or they'll get sick, right? Because there's no refrigeration and stuff like that. Uh, well, that's the uh, funny idea of like taking it literally in a traditionalist approach because you could say, I mean, every group of Christians or whatever religion you want to point to that has a religious book that there's debate about can say, well, well, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it literally says that, but we don't really follow that. And here's what they probably meant. And here's how yeah. we kind of interpreted it for right. 500, 1,000, 2,000 years. But I mean, if you have a, you know, a constitutional traditionalist style kind of thinker, they'd say, but you can't deny the fact that it's written, so therefore we should follow it to the letter of the law. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Um, so, and especially just the idea of like all of these amendments and stuff, you know, after, you know, how, how many hundreds of years do we have to have this list of amendments? Why can't we just go and change all of those, uh, you know, all of the articles of the Constitution? Like Article 3, all the amendments that relate to it, let's just insert it, you know, rewrite Article 3, you know, and then we don't have to have this like random list of amendments. Why don't we just change the Constitution? And, you know, I'm a big believer in that law is a living thing that should always be improved upon and edited as times change or, you know, opinions and morals kind of evolve. Um, you know, why not always be rewriting it to make it ever more perfect? 
Well, yeah, and there's a, I mean, the other kind of whole point of the American system of law is that, you know, if you're wronged in some way, you take it to a court and the court could decide that the law is wrong and, you know, that the the injustice uh, inflicted upon the person in question proves that that law was not right or it proves that we need to rethink the way the law is applied as far as punishments or, you know, crimes go, right? So in that way, right. like, how could you not argue that it's a living document, especially as uh, technological uh, change happens, as society changes? Um, I mean, to some degree, you know, you, you would expect that to happen, right? Right. Uh, and, and back to the idea of, like, the amendments just being added into the articles of uh, the Constitution. You know, like, the amendment that women can vote. Why does that have to be a standalone thing forever? <laughs> <laughs> Why do you read the Constitution and only when you get to the amendments at the end and then near the end of the list of amendments, mind you, do you get to the part like, oh, yeah, and uh, women can vote? <laughs> you know, Why not just change our Constitution to have that cemented in the main part of the Constitution? Like, why do we have to embarrass ourselves uh, forever, you know, that women are this like well, added think, uh, part in the back? Well, I think that's a good point because in our documents, a, a document that proves to the point that, you know, history was not perfect we've made these great strides and you know i don't think we should try to hide it by rewriting the constitution just to put that stuff in um that being said though i think everyone could agree that there's probably some constitutional changes that need to change at, at least as far as our government works right i mean there's a lot of things you could point to uh and this is a completely different topic but like the senate like why do we have five states having, you know, upwards of 60% of the population or whatever it is, you know, if you take the top 10 states, they probably have close to 60%, right? Uh, maybe even a little more. Um, and then the fact that you have all this political power distributed out to these really, uh, really rural areas that uh, no one lives in. Right. Uh, so yeah, we've kind of talked about the judicial aspect of the culture war. Uh, maybe let's talk about... Um, kind of more um, uh, like cultural ideas of it. I have a note here that I wrote down. I was reading uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' book. Um, it's like a compilation of essays he wrote in the Obama years. And it was very fascinating. Obviously, there was a lot of talk about culture issues and the culture war in terms of race. And I, let me bounce this idea off you. I thought it was kind of profound. The idea that Trump is impossible without Obama, that Trump was only elected following the first black president because of the kind of racist tendencies of a lot of people in America. And he actually, mm -hmm. uh, he had the idea that in many ways, Trump is actually the first white president in the sense that, yeah, obviously most of our presidents in history have been white, but they were white only in that like white people, you know, could go through uh, the political system and get elected. Whereas like it, you could think of it in some ways as like a reset where like now that we have a black president, anything is possible. And then you have Trump that runs his campaign that's kind of like like overtly white nationalist. So in a way, Trump is like the first like specifically white president following the black president. You know, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, I think there's a lot of truth to that, that um, having a, a group of voters who see American politics as a conflict between white Americans and then, you know, people of color who they don't really see as real Americans is definitely salient today, certainly since, you know, 
2013, you know, especially as Trump was running, talking about uh, very racist things. And, you know, unlike people like Nixon or, you know, any of the number of Republicans who ran for the primary or the nomination of the Republican Party but didn't get it, uh, you know, Trump used a lot of those same overtly uh, kind of racist dog whistles that, you know, trying to, I mean, it's like the same thing, you know, the way Reagan talked about uh, welfare queens, right? I mean, very pointed, uh, specific wording and ways of describing the country that, that get people with this kind of, I don't know, I don't know if Trump's necessarily the first one, but, you know, the first white president, but you could say he's the most white president, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I guess you could say Because, that. I mean... Looking back at Nixon and, I mean, even George H.W. Bush had, like, the Willie Horton ads, right? And that was a very, you know, specific kind of messaging uh, attempt to get that class of people who were against, uh, you know, kind of racist underbelly, especially in the South, right? And and, and always kind of present in the Republican Party, you know, since the uh, 70s. Yeah, that's Um, a good point, too, because I have said this so many times that, like, conservatives are you know like invented identity politics right the whole idea now Mm -hmm. is that liberals and democrats are all about identity politics but that's absurd because republicans are like i mean you the famous photos of like the uh all the um assistants and interns in congress right you get the republican interns and it's just a sea of white right and then you know democrats aren't perfect but like you look at a picture of their group of uh interns and stuff like that and it's filled with people of all different ethnicities and you know uh genders and uh sexual orientations and things like that right so one party is off you know for better or for worse uh on how perfect they are or whatever one party is way conspicuously better on identity politics than the other but the idea is that like identity politics were invented by republicans to kind of keep america a white uh male oriented kind of patriarchal idea uh very christian oriented kind of political party and then democrats basically for everybody else are like hey let's maybe not screw over native americans entirely hey let's maybe uh fix voting rights that disproportionately disenfranchise black people and you can go on and on it's like literally democrats are just trying to help everyone who gets left in the dust um, behind Republicans, like overtly white identity politics of Christian males, basically. Well, yeah, and I think that's a good point. I mean, and you can even see it kind of in history, right, between the liberal and conservative uh, movements, you know, regardless of which party is kind of the more liberal one or conservative one over the last, uh, basically since 1865, because, I mean, almost always in our country's history since black people have been guaranteed the right to vote, uh, after 1865, you had a majority of black people choosing one party over the other. Yeah. So doesn't that kind of inherently imply that identity politics on the... You know, they've always kind of taken the liberal position, right? Because, you know, the party of Lincoln took the liberal position of freeing the slaves. It's That was certainly not a conservative thing. Oh, for <laughs> um, sure. We should, so the we fact, should have a whole yeah. podcast on the 1864 platform because... I mean, if you actually look at the 1864 platform, like Lincoln and all of the Republicans uh, back in the day would certainly be liberal uh, Democrats today. Like they were liberal Republicans then, they would be Democrats today. Um, We could have a whole podcast on this, but the parties basically flip kind of between like, like basically like the 1880s, they started flipping and then 
Teddy Roosevelt was kind of like the last liberal Republican. And then that shift between Teddy Roosevelt and Taft, both, you know, running for the Republican Party kind of totally shifted it. And um, Teddy Roosevelt was kind of like the trust busting, big government, uh, uh, kind of like the liberal back in the day. And then Taft was kind of the more, cons you know, Taft was uh, Teddy Roosevelt's successor. And then Teddy was uh, so unimpressed and dissatisfied with uh, Taft uh, continuing on his legacy that he ran against Taft. And then, of course, the Democrat won. And then kind of going through... Uh, the 20s and the 30s with the laissez-faire, more contemporarily conservative uh, Republicans. And then you get FDR, who was kind of, you know, kind of set the tone for modern day liberals that we know now in the Democratic yeah, Party. Yeah, um, the uh, political party systems in this country have kind of been like a thing of like our political history where historians and political scientists have identified specific uh uh, party systems over time. And, and, like everyone knows the first one of the Federalist versus the Anti-Federalist. Then we have this weird situation where the Democratic Republicans have power for multiple administrations in a row. Then the uh, Whigs come up and the Re then the Republican Party and then pretty much for a, quite a while the entire country's political system is just based on the idea of whether or not we can have slavery or not. And then after that, you have Reconstruction. But then, yeah, the, the modern political system as we know it, like you said, really kind of takes off in the 1890s uh, and really kind of formulates between uh, the 1910s and uh, Franklin Roosevelt. So, I mean, today we're kind of in a very unique um, political kind of set of cycles where every single kind of issue is quickly becoming identity politics and and like we're really starting to see that there's people who are fed up with both the democratic party and the republican party and you see consistent yeah you know what that's actually kind of a that's a very interesting idea because like identity politics has taken on even as trump got elected and it used to be kind of almost economic issues like through the yeah. 90s and stuff right it wasn't so dependent on uh identity politics but the idea of whether or not we would have free trade or not, high taxes or not. Uh, but now, like, Trump got elected and he, uh, you know, Trump's all over the map on what his actual political ideology is. But he certainly did, uh, like, a reset on the Republican Party's economic, uh, I guess, if not in practice, what they actually passed. Because, right, the Republican Party with Trump, all they really did was do the tax cuts still. But Trump himself... Um, has been very populist and kind of campaigning on the greed of rich people like him and a very populist approach to things like uh, trade deals and things like that. So uh, would you say that we're kind of like on the cusp of oh, a I think it's already started. I mean, politics? I think it's already started and it's so recent because if you just go back to the previous presidential election in, in, in 2012, uh, Romney versus Obama. Yeah, that's true. Mitt Romney and Obama were basically. Well, I mean, yeah, we had all, we had a lot of identity politic issues back then. But like, the funny thing is, is that election really kind of revolved around uh, whether or not the top marginal tax uh, rate would be like thirty nine percent or thirty five percent. Right, that was kind of the big issue between Romney <laughs> yeah, and Obama. Right. And the Democrats said, we need to raise taxes. Yeah. We can't afford all this stuff. Like the, the rich are getting too rich. And Mitt Romney, you know, the Republicans basically said that, oh, if we increase it two percentage points, that's communism. We won't be a capitalist country anymore. Like, why are we hurting rich people when they make all the jobs? And in 2016, it, it completely upends right. the entire political system because of uh, Trump. I mean, he basically undid uh, 30 years worth of Republican ideology 
And it's it's weird because it's really he just wooed all these voters simply because he was racist, right? He didn't talk about free trade. He didn't talk about uh, you know de. Uh, hold on, Adrian. It wasn't it wasn't just racism. It's economic angst. Well, yeah, that's the funny thing is like economic <laughs> angst. Well, yeah, the economic angst has been caused by the Republican Party over the last thirty years, and you know the Democrats aren't you know free from being complicit a little bit too because the Democratic Party used to be kind of a glorified liberal uh, workers party, right? Uh, you know, going back to FDR, they were right. for unions, they were for higher minimum wages. Um, but I mean, starting in 2008, the Democratic Party kind of went, and certainly after Citizens United, you know, they kind of jumped in on the bandwagon of just, we need more money, let's go to where we can get it. And we'll, you know, in, uh, you know, follow policies right. that will allow us to get at least some of the big donor money, you know? Yeah. And real quick, going back to FDR, it's interesting, too, because remember, like, you know, all of the New Deal stuff, the only way to really get it passed into law was to convince a lot of conservative Democrats and then Republicans in the South that they wouldn't extend all of these New Deal programs to black people. So even then, Republicans, it was still the identity politics of white people, right? Because the, the, the Republicans and then the more conservative Southern Democrats were only willing to spend the government money as long as it didn't go to, you know, minorities. <laughs> you know, famously, like even, even uh, like uh, reading uh, Coates' book uh, and all of his analysis and stuff that he wrote for The Atlantic, that a lot of uh, kind of democratic liberal policies only get passed into law when they kind of intentionally exclude yeah. black people. And that's actually one of the major instances of kind of systemic racism is that you get uh, the kind of white flight and suburbs that spring up in post-war America, where a lot of those New Deal programs and even the GI Bill giving free college education and then uh, various economic incentives to like move to the suburbs and build a new house and a new neighborhood that kept out black people and then you get the redlining. So a lot of the systemic stuff, you know, comes from the most ambitiously, uh, giving government policies, you know, that kind of made America the, uh, you know, gave America such a giant middle class and made us such a strong economy uh, was kind of intentionally, you know, only made for white people. And obviously with black people, you know, a big reason why there's systemic racism is with the redlining and stuff that when black people move into a neighborhood, suddenly all the white people move out and the neighborhood's worthless and homes are worthless. So, you know, a lot of white people, uh, they're able to either give a small inheritance to their kids or at least give a home that they own to their kids. And it's kind of like a upward mobility path for white people, whereas black people, you know, their homes are worthless or they're never really allowed to own it in the first place. And obviously in the 60s and 70s, there were all kinds of ways and loopholes and legal workarounds to basically screw black people out of owning any property. And even like Donald Trump himself, you know, was he was sued by the government for some of this, for not uh, letting black people live in any <laughs> yeah. of his properties, yeah. you know. So once again, Democrats today, you know, it's, everything's about identity politics today, but Democrats are just trying to, you know, help out the victims of the white identity politics the Republican Party has been so glued to. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, you can see it starting in the 1960s. The minute, you know, civil rights is passed by Democrats, you have an exodus of blacks who used to vote pretty regularly for Republicans. And they, you know, from that point on, once identity politics kind of becomes the name of the game, you can see what side all of the black people vote for. Uh, and, you know, that kind of culminates with, you know, Obama, obviously, in 2008 and 2012. But even against Donald Trump, 
uh, what was it, 90-something percent of all black voters voted for Hillary. Um, so Yeah, I think it was like 92% of all black voters, but then when you get to black women, it was like something like 97 or 98% of black women voters voted against Trump, which is uh, pretty, pretty, you know, it's can you say the party that gets... Two percent of black women's votes isn't racist. <laughs> well, it's funny because uh, you know what is the Republican uh, rebuttal to this? They will say, "Well, Democrats are you know how can we compete with Democrats when all they do is just give free stuff to black voters?" Which I mean, it's not really true. The Democratic Party for most of the you know the entire eighties didn't have control of the White House. Uh, we had control in the nineties and after George W. Bush, but it's not like. You know, there's unending just free giveaways to black people among Democrats. We haven't even had control of the Congress that much, you know, this century so far. So um, that idea is kind of just stupid. And it's kind of like a racist explanation. They say, like, our policies are perfect for everybody. And the only reason no black people will vote for us is because we don't give them free stuff. And that's such an ignorant way of looking at it, too, especially since they're the ones actively trying. You know, they, they're caught publicly many times, especially at the state level, bragging that this will disenfranchise people of color from voting. So, like, when those things come out, is it any surprise that black people don't want to vote for them? Right. Yeah. Um, And then, like, obviously now identity politics is shifting, uh, you know, not that things are perfect, but the idea that we elected Obama kind of, you know, uh, gives black people maybe a leg up, uh, politically than they have had before and things are in no way perfect but then like on on the other hand you get people like mitch mcconnell who just recently said that um like america has atoned for its racist past by electing obama it's like that's not that's not true that's not real well i mean it's kind of a dumb argument anyway because that same guy spent the entire obama administration purposely Uh, attacking everything he wanted to do and made the Republican Party the party of no specifically because they didn't want that black president to succeed. And you can say it's because he was a Democrat. Yeah, you can say it's because they didn't want a Democrat to succeed. But, I mean, you can't deny the fact that he was the first black president and Obama probably had... You know, they like to criticize that Trump's had it worse than Obama, but uh, the Democrats are willing to play ball. Just Trump is so uniquely incompetent unqualified and furthermore like incapable of making deals ironically even though he's a guy who's supposed to be able to make deals like nancy pelosi and chuck schumer at the beginning of his presidency were willing to make deals and concessions on all sorts of things but nothing happened just because trump's not even capable of making deals with people you know notionally willing to do so if it helps americans yeah i mean like we said earlier the only real main accomplishment is that tax bill and granted, that uh, Trump did have the uh, prison reform bill, the first step, which was pretty good. But famously, you know, Trump was not involved in any way in it. Jared Kushner and a lot of Democrats and Republicans in Congress kind of hashed out that compromise. And it was helped by a lot of like celebrity kind of, uh, you know, giving celebrities giving attention to it. And, uh, you know, weirdly enough, Kim Kardashian, Kanye West, <laughs> you know, people like that helping uh, get that through. But that that was you could hardly say that was a priority for Donald Trump. I don't think he campaigned on that. If anything, Donald Trump was campaigning on putting more people in prison by saying that America is like a, a wasteland and a hellscape and police need to you know, have more brutality against criminals and thugs. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like that one accomplishment, you can't really, you know, give to well, Donald I would Trump. Add, I would add the... Uh... 
idea that I don't personally, maybe it's just an opinion, uh, but I think it's kind of founded by uh, what we know about Trump. But I don't think Trump's smart enough or knows enough about policy to even be effective in negotiating any of these things. So I think any legislative victory you can speak of, uh, the only support Trump was able to give was his acquiescence so that his voter base would support it. And Trump probably brought nothing to the table in terms of policy, understanding, or suggestion. Oh, yeah. And you can see that. You can totally see that in the healthcare uh, repeal efforts, right? Republicans tried three times. And basically, like... Like all negotiations, like uh, Trump would have some like statement or whatever about what he wants. Then he'd have a meeting with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and want to make a deal. So give the, he would announce something that he would give uh, Pelosi and Schumer something Democrats would want that then would be so toxic to the, his own Republican Party that Paul Ryan, you know, couldn't get House Republicans to approve, you know, like <laughs> yeah. the Freedom Caucus, right, to approve it. And so Donald Trump himself, the, like Republicans had the majority and, both, you know, had like the entire government. They could have passed it, but uh, Donald Trump himself ruined uh, their ability to do anything. And then, you know, famously, they had the skinny repeal, which was kind of like their last military yeah. effort that had it had no <laughs> replacement plan, but just repealed Obamacare, but delayed the actual repeal for two years to kind of kick the can down the road so that they could get, uh, hopefully in that time, have their own uh, like Obamacare replacement. But even then, like, you know, a... a uh, enough Republicans voted against that, enough Republican senators voted against it, saying this is irresponsible. And, you know, there is no reason to believe that Republicans would be able to have, you know, to create that that repeal replacement because, you know, the Republican Party can't decide amongst themselves between the uh, extreme conservatives who don't want any health care plan from the government at all, don't want the government to exist really, except for like the military and things like that versus other more moderate Republicans who realize, yeah, we should probably be doing something to help all of these people. Uh, you know, oh, of course, yeah. Insurance and pre-existing conditions and that and whatnot. Um, so Trump, and, you know, then of course there's the infrastructure weeks that Trump was never able to do, you know, always kicking. Well, that's just but further proof. I think that's actually that's just further that's proof, a, right? Because he's been president oh, yeah. for almost four years now. And, uh, uh, you would think he could get his team together to come up with all these good policy proposals, but that hasn't happened, right? We know exactly what Trump does every day because he's tweeting all day. And, you know, they put out a schedule and uh, there's not a lot of meetings involved. And I mean, yeah, there was an issue the other hours. <laughs> yeah, there was uh, I saw yesterday uh, Trump, you know, people were calling him out because uh, he was in a meeting with all these female uh, business owners talking to him in this meeting about, you know, how they've been hurt by covid and, you know, you know what they see on the ground as a business owner uh, in the time of COVID. And, and you see Trump for like three minutes pull out his phone and he's just like scrolling and you see his hand flipping like he's just <laughs> looking at stuff on social media. So, I mean, you know, it's funny that you have a meeting where these people come to talk to the president and he's not even paying attention. So... Yeah, what I, did, I didn't see that. I'll have to look that up. That sounds funny. He literally pulled out his phone and is just scrolling on Twitter. Well, yeah, he pulls out his phone. He's, he's scrolling on some kind of app or social media. And then every once in a while, he looks up. And then after like three minutes, he just puts it. And then he just sits there with his arms crossed. And he's like looking around, <laughs> yeah. like in the room. And it's like, do you even hear these women talking right. to you? He's pissed <laughs> off that there's no men in the room. Which, you know, yeah. this gets back to the issue that I think is like very important. That Donald Trump, really, if he was smarter 
could have been a wildly transformative president because I mean Republicans yeah. in general, right? Whether it's Nixon being anti-war or anti-communist, but then opening things up with China, you know, uh, there's tons of instances of the Overton window being shifted only by Republicans, right? Because so many conservatives in America are so intent on resisting certain governmental changes or new laws or new protections for people that like Republicans as a whole are so against it that you really do have a president like Nixon who can come in, right, with this very hard, he gets elected with very hardline stances, you know, dog whistles with racism and stuff like that. And uh, like Republicans, if they're smart, right, because I think maybe just conservatives, right, that they value loyalty as kind of like a personality trait. So maybe they are a little more um, kind of uh, more obstinate in terms of how they view government. So when you actually get a smart Republican president in office, the, you are, you're, the Republican is allowed to do so much more and go against his kind of like base beliefs than Democrats are allowed to do, right? Because like, Repub you know, Nixon was a hardcore Republican, but he started the EPA. Like how, do, you know, especially in terms of like politics circa 2020, right? You don't get more, you don't get less Republican than caring about the environment and stopping pollution and being bad for business by, you know, stopping them from dumping shit into rivers in the air and stuff like that. And then, you know, no Democrat could have gone to China and opened up relationships with Soviet, uh, with communist China, right? Only a Republican could have done that in uh, like 1972 or whatever it was, right? And it's the same thing now, like with Trump's base, they're so obstinate, but they love Trump so much, right? Like no Democrat could pass a massive infrastructure plan, but Trump could have. He could have been a wildly transformative uh, president if he had made a deal with Democrats to like maybe spend $2 trillion, right, on uh, deficit spending that will invest in the future, right? No Democrat could do that. Uh, Trump could have made some deal with Democrats, like if he had made some of those deals with Pelosi and Schumer and actually gotten the Republican Party behind him by maybe making his voter base approve of his ideas and then pressure more moderate, more hardline Republicans or like pressure Paul Ryan to pass it through the House, right? Um, like you, I, there is, there, the, the Overton window so strongly favors conservatives and Republicans because they're so against so many ideas. And I mean, Trump, you know, for his ego is so big. He wants to be remembered as such a great guy and love. But can you imagine if you or like just imagine his reelection, if Trump had passed like a major infrastructure plan that Democrats liked and approved of. Right. If uh, if he had made some deal with Republicans on health care. Right. If he had done all of these things that he could do because his base is very loyal to Trump personally and not loyal to the Republican Party ideologically anymore, obviously, like, you know, Trump has just trampled over 30, we say it all the time, Trump's trampled over 30 years of uh, enduring Republican ideology. Like, I mean, yeah. really, Trump is, it's just like a massive opportunity wasted. He had the political calculus to come in and make a deal, right? He's always saying he's such a great deal maker. He could have made amazing deals, you know, forcing Republicans to throw Democrats a few bones, right? And then he could have this, uh, you know, he could be going up for re-election with all of these legislative accomplishments that kind of take the wind out of the sails of Democrats, right? I don't know. What do you think about yeah. all that? I rambled on for a little bit, but yeah, I mean, I, I really do think that uh, Trump could have been a transformational president just because his supporters will go along with anything he tweets and flip on a dime if Trump says it, you know? 
Well, I agree with that, and I think uh, another way he, I mean, you know, that's what he could have been, right? Um, the you know alternative reality of a more competent Donald Trump and what could have been, but I think what's ultimately going to happen is he is going to be a transformative politician, at least in the short term, simply because you know this whole podcast is about identity politics, but. Uh, I just saw uh, a new uh, poll for Joe Biden and the matchup with him and uh, Donald Trump. And, uh, well, like what kind of identity politics is being played when the, uh, Joe Biden is up 19 points with women? Yeah. Right. Right. And and when he's up, you know, 79 points among African-Americans and among college educated, you know, generally he's up like whatever, four points. And then. I think uh, among <laughs> this is another one, uh, people 65 and over, uh, Joe Biden is up like 10 points right now. So when you talk about identity politics, Trump has basically transformed the Republican Party, uh, not into the, you know, uh, the more rational and sensible party like Republicans like to think, you know, the right uh, the right wing white male voters that he's kind of captured. Um, but he is kind of like the anti-identity politics because, ironically, he's bringing every identity except white men to the other political party. So African-Americans, Latinos, Asians, people over 65. I mean, he's literally reversing one of the Republican Party's biggest uh, voter strongholds, at least since 2000, right? Right. Old uh, so what does that yeah. say? <laughs> yeah. You talk about identity. He's literally, he's basically got one identity going for him, and that's like white males and every other identity in this pluralistic multiracial country is going against him so ironically i mean who's really peddling the identity politics right i mean in that light maybe democrats aren't the ones to blame for this it's republicans themselves and you know it's these all these uh you know white people on social media complaining about how the far left has gone extreme and crazy well it's like you don't realize that your big tent is really uh, really kind of shrunken to only the uh, white people who live in like your kind of area, especially yeah. predominantly rural areas. And mostly it's white males. Um, like a lot of these white yeah. male Trump voters, their wives and mothers and daughters, <laughs> you know, are switching liberal now, you know? Uh, well, and that's the crazy thing coming into the re-election is how, I mean, I don't want, you know, to think, or I don't want anyone to think that they don't need to vote, but it's it's hard to believe a incumbent winning an election when you're down 19 points among women. Right. Because uh, more women in America vote than men, typically, in every election. Um, and then you're down with old people. You're way down. You're down by, like, 30 points among people under 30, right? Granted, most of them don't vote, but you're also down among African Americans. Right. You're down among Hispanic. You're basically down among every group of people but white men. And uh, it's hard to imagine winning a nationwide contest with that kind of uh, demographic uh, yeah. voter. And it's kind of <laughs> I guess, interesting, uh, too. Anger the, towards you. the only solution for Republicans is to kind of double down on those identity politics, right? Because you have states like. Um, like Georgia, for instance, right now, you know, right, uh, disenfranchising tens, hundreds of thousands of voters. And, uh, you know, that was in 2018. Now they're doing it even more now in 2020. Uh, like, it, like they're cutting all of these uh, voting uh, precincts and polling places. Like literally the only thing they can do is double down on these identity politics and try to keep um, like students from voting, black people from voting. You know, they, they send out mailers with the wrong voting date, <laughs> predominantly minority uh, communities, you know? Yeah. O ostensibly as they're like, uh, they're advertising, but it's like legit straight up uh, disenfranchisement. 
Yeah, and I think it's funny because uh, I think it's taken about 54 minutes to come to this conclusion, but we started this podcast talking about the identity politics on the left, and we've kind of come to the conclusion, I think, that we can back up with just how our politics works right now and kind of current events that, no, it's actually the Republican Party that's doubling and tripling down on identity politics, and the Democrats are just responding to it, right? right? So, you know, what, what do you hear in the media? Is, you hear conservatives, especially on, like, social media, complaining that Democrats are all about identity politics because all they care about is giving black people free stuff and it's like no they're just against police brutality and you know sorry that your political party is doubling down on police brutality so who's playing identity politics right so that's an interesting kind of conclusion we've kind of come to here right and the the police stuff the police brutality is really like you said about the big tent kind of idea of politics like with this police brutality and you get all these white people protesting and then the white people get beat up too, you know, like it's, it's now, uh, some of these issues really now are affecting everybody. And it's, especially with social media and the internet, it's impossible now to hide some of these things. And it is kind of interesting too, because like, you know, black lives matter will protest and like throw a big shitstorm when police kill a white person. Right. But where are the all lives matter people, you know, coming out to yeah. protest when white people are murdered. And then you get like the all all lives matter people saying, "Well, look, police kill white people too." And then like everyone else is just like, "Yeah, that's the problem. Police should not be killing anybody." <laughs> you know? It's not it's not Oh, well, certainly. It's not defeating and Black I, Lives Matter when police kill white people as well. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the kind of political reckoning that, you know, when you talk about who's on the right side of history, I mean, compare police brutality today with Jim Crow prior to 1963, 1964, 1965, right? It really took a federal government top-down approach to just put a stop to it. And we're going to see that with police brutality, uh, whether or not it's in the short term or maybe it takes a couple more years. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is that you have a lot of police. I mean, a lot of them are good people, right? I mean, I mean not to quote Donald Trump, you <laughs> yeah. know, who said, like, some of them are, some of you them know, are good yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, the fact of the matter is that they're not trained enough they're probably trained less than 18-year-old, you know, uh, servicemen who serve overseas and have more self-control and uh, calmness and, you know, facing adversity or outright, you know, potential shootouts or death. But you have a lot of cops who shouldn't be in the job. They're undertrained and they're doing a poor job, right? The fact that you take someone who's not resisting and put your 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 knee on their neck like they did to uh, that policeman did to George Floyd. Well, I mean that's not something you know that's called for in any um, conceivable. Uh, uh, I don't know, like conceivable. Uh, um, way of looking at the force continuum that they're taught right so like i mean i was in the military the force continuum does not say that if they're running away you shoot them in the back right in a lot of ways that's literally murder because if someone's running away and they don't even have a weapon like some of these police brutality cases are they're not a threat they can't be a threat right and that's the funny thing is they talk about like the uh you know there's a force triangle that all sides of the triangle have to be met in order to use deadly force one is they have to have a weapon they have to be able to use it and they have to have the intent to use it, right? So, I mean, intent is always hard to explain, but like if a guy doesn't have a weapon, um, you can't shoot him. And if he has a weapon, let's say it's a baseball bat, but he's 30 feet away from you, well, you have time, right? If he's not coming towards you, he does not have the range to hurt you with that weapon, you can't shoot him, 
right? And if like someone, you know, is screaming like, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and he's not resisting, well then there's certainly no weapon. There's no capability to use this weapon that doesn't exist. And there's no intent being said or demonstrated that he's gonna hurt you, right? Right, and uh, you know, you hear nowadays people like conservatives are saying, well, we can't have a national, um, I forget the term that they use, like when police can kill people or whatever, like, uh, or use violence or whatever, like we can't have national laws for all police. But the idea is like, yeah, we can. We have the military. It's a national law yeah. base of when you can use force and how you can apply it and <laughs> things like that. It's very um, true. Let's talk also, uh, let's mention about like Hollywood because you, you wanted to mention about Hollywood and like on the, on the extreme other end of identity politics where you get some of these like extreme far left liberals who say that like all aspects of society are irredeemable and that there's nothing we can do and that every institution and organization in the country is inherently systemically racist. And I think you wanted to, you wanted to have some comments on that, didn't you? Yeah, so I mean, I was talking uh, to my girlfriend earlier, and we were just kind of discussing these issues. And you know, people look at things like the Marvel movies, and they say, "Why are there so many white people in these movies?" And I mean, to some degree, the conclusion has to be, well, well, maybe if we're making all these movies based on comic books written in the '50s and '60s, maybe they're not going to have the best representation of America's uh, uh, different demographics, right? Um, so, and to another degree, you know, Hollywood goes out of their way to be inclusive now, which is a good thing, right? Nobody on the left is disparaging that, right? If you want to have a uh, musical about the founding fathers like Hamilton and you make all of them Latino or African American, no one cares, right? There's not that many people other than the extreme right complaining on social media that care that that's, you know, you know, happened, right? So to some degree, I think like, while you can accept that Hollywood used to be pretty racist and bad, right now at some point you have to say, well, Hollywood's not that bad now. And, you know, they're actively trying to get better and be more inclusive in every opportunity and, and way that they can, even going so far as like purposely hiring female directors or making sure the staff working on the movie, you know, behind the scenes, behind the screen, are women or people of color as well then at some point you kind of have to stop knocking them if it's not a perfect 50 50 split between male or female or if there's not a perfect like you know 13 to 18 or uh, whatever percentage of african americans there are you're not going to match everything perfectly right uh i mean the same thing like if you have uh, a local jurisdiction that says we are willing to hire female firefighters if they can pass the standards that we have set by law, right? Or by our policy. And, you know, you know, say we'll, we'll go out of our way to, you know, help women, you know, go to the academy. We'll help them train. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll guarantee we hire them and we won't, you know, be prejudiced against them. But I mean, at the same degree, if not that many women want to be firefighters, even after you've gone out of your way to make it open and inclusive to them, well, then it's not the firefighters problem that for whatever reason, there's not a 50-50 split if they're not if they're going out of their way to purposely make sure there is no barrier standing in women's way. Like to some degree, society has to accept that maybe there are some differences between what women and, and, and men want to do with their life or people from different you know communities. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, that's an interesting idea, because I mean, it, to some degree, you get some of those social justice warriors that might say things. I mean, again, it's not mainstream by any means. But the idea that like until, you know, if women make up 52 percent of the population, 
if you start saying things like until women make up 52% of all firefighters, it's inherently systemically sexist and needs to burn to the ground, you know, like all fire departments, yeah. like that's not really healthy. And, uh, well, well, I would just add one thing is like, you can, like, we can all accept that. Yes. Part of the reason women don't, you know, maybe be, uh, might be disinfluenced to want to become a firefighter is the past 150 years of our history telling, you know, little girls that they can't do that or they shouldn't want to. And, and that's a problem, right? But we can't do anything about that. And if right now we go out of our way to eliminate barriers and, you know, to some degree women, if they really want to like, uh, you know, work out a lot, exercise, pass standards and become a firefighter, if there's really nothing blocking their way right now today in 2020 then how can we blame you know a local government for having systemic sexism when there's really no barriers it's just you know we have to accept that yeah for whatever reason some women are you know don't want to do certain things uh so maybe you know if we get to 48 percent women in a state's like fire department right uh force uh are you gonna still say it's sexist if there's no barriers in their way and, yeah. and you know this is it's such a simplistic way of looking at it but it's a hypothetical question right like for example the military has opened up pretty much every billet except the uh you know special forces uh to women right and it's been like that for years uh when i served there were plenty of women uh, who served there's more and more every year, which is a good thing So we're kind of getting past that idea that you know telling women they shouldn't serve or they can't or they can't do that Whatever, but I mean the point is if, if, if 30 years have gone by with more and more women and I, mean, I I've had female CEOs too So I mean clearly there aren't barriers like there used to be but if in 10 years from now We still don't get 52% of the military women does that really mean that there's still rampant sexism um, or can we accept that maybe women and men have different ideas of what they want to do with their lives for whatever reason? And it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a sexist interpretation of how society fails to function properly. Yeah, I do think it's important to, I mean, it's like when you're dealing with so much outrage from conservatives that hate the cultural mm -hmm. change and the more like welcoming acceptance of like all of identity politics and stuff like that. I think it's important to not be so militant that you can't acknowledge and agree that things are <laughs> are getting better and are better than they used to be, right? Like, well, they got better this week, right? Because the fact that you you know a company cannot legally say I'm firing you because you're right. gay. Yeah, and, the Supreme you know, Court just had a yeah. major uh, victory for you just this week, right? But it's you know it's like the idea like if like things are so bad and terrible, but like. If you're black or a woman, do you really want to go back to 1970, right? Like if you're yeah. if you're a social justice warrior saying like everything is like all of American culture is just damned and like everything needs to be burned to the ground. Like do you really want to go back to 1970 when all of your teachers would tell you all you could be is like an elementary school teacher or like a stay-at-home mom, like or like a secretary, like you had three career paths, right? Like or like, well, look at Hillary Clinton, right? Hillary Clinton was criticized on the right because she made a comment in like the early '90s when Bill Clinton was running, saying that like she didn't want to be a stay-at-home mom, and they made it a huge political thing because all these people were like, "Are you criticizing women who want to stay home and be homemakers and have children and raise their kids?" And like it was a complete overreaction to something, you know, Hillary Clinton's opinion basically on what she wanted to do with her life. Right. Um, so I mean, you've seen this for years, and I think we've come a long way. Like you said, we've come such a long way from even the '90s, right? Um, that being said, um, you know, I don't think you should make everything the most extreme 
you know, uh, sexist interpretation of how our society functions and you shouldn't find everything problematic, right? Even if, you know, we still have some ways to go, you should accept that America has come... Uh, I mean, look at gay rights, right? 2004, the presidential election was partially... You know, most... <laughs> People yeah. will say that a big reason Bush won was because of the wedge issue of gay rights. Right. And, and then, that, that you know, one, tenure... real quick, that was something that, like, Karl Rove intentionally injected, right? Because, like, a lot yeah. of swing states, conservatives were, you know, objectively smart, if, you know, malicious in intent, right? They intentionally added a bunch of those, uh, the kind of, like, uh, citizen petitions to get things on the ballot, right? They intentionally did that in all these swing states to add gay rights to the ballot to get conservatives up in arms to go vote. And then while they're voting, you know, people who might not have normally voted, while they're voting against gay rights, they'll go ahead and vote for George W. Bush, you know? Like, literally, it was an intentional uh, strategy to get to get the vote out. Well, yeah, and, then, and that just goes to how, how gradual some of these changes just inherently are, right? Um, for example, like, take a car company that, like, I'm just going to make a hypothetical kind of situation here but like imagine ford for whatever reason hires all of their executive managers from within ford right and you know in a perfect world you could you could enter the factory and ford you know work on cars and work your way up to being you know an executive manager well if in the 90s uh 85% of people who join ford's workforce are men then you know 30 years later in the 2020s you're not going to expect many women to be there, right? Because if Ford goes out of their way to hire from their own ranks and 30 years ago, people, you know, almost all workers were men, then you're not going to see a lot. Of, and, and, you know, the, the same thing can be said of Congress. People criticize the Congress for uh, not having many women. But I mean, if you go back to the 1970s when there weren't many women in Congress and you just accept the fact that 90 percent of congressmen usually get reelected, well, then it's going to take time to get new people in there, right? And, and you have like politicians like uh, Mitch McConnell, who've been in since the 80s. So his seat has not been open for a woman or a person of color for 40 years, right? So you're not going to see uh, a huge, you know, people who say like, oh, we need to fix this overnight. We need 50% of every industry to be women right now. I mean, it's not going to happen. Uh, it's just not how society works, right? Yeah, and um, it, there's all kinds of like market incentives too because I think about, uh, you know, some countries that have adopted, um, uh, what's it called where you have, like you mandate that like half half of a board quotas. or something. Yeah, quotas. Like for instance, one of my good friends in college was from South Africa and South Africa had a lot of problems. I mean, granted, there's like, it's a very complex issue, but in South Africa and a lot of places, like you have to have uh, black people like on anything you want to do or you literally can't start a business. And uh, granted, mm -hmm. you can say that's a, you know, that's a good idea. It forces uh, kind of integration like immediately, like right now. But on the other hand, it has that market force of a lot of white people with money literally left South Africa and maybe South Africa was kind of like hurt economically and developmentally because of that. And granted, I mean, it's like the same kind of effect with like taxing rich people, right? A big reason why you can't just massively increase taxes on rich people is that they'll just put all of their money now in offshore accounts or move America <laughs> yeah. or every company exactly. in America will rush and suddenly like incorporate in Ireland or the Cayman Islands or something for a super low tax rate, you know? So like, I mean, it, it is a little bit of a balancing act and usually it does have the effect of slowing things down negatively 
but I mean, like all things, you know, don't let gradual progress, like the good, be the enemy of perfect, of like overnight immediately forcing everybody to, uh, you know, integrate in some way that a social justice warrior would want immediately. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, so just something to think in mind there. Uh, what do you think about the future of identity politics? We talked earlier about how kind of like identity politics now is the uh, the kind of like overwhelming theme to contemporary politics. Do you think uh, like famously when uh, Trump got elected, right? Paul Ryan had a speech in his pocket, like uh, all about how we can't embrace these identity politics. We have to be more inviting and have a big tent. And then Trump like miraculously won. Um, and he didn't read that speech and said something else, right? So, like, what do you think are the lessons for the Republican Party? Or do you think they're just going to continue doubling down and take more authoritative, like, white Christian male power at the expense of what America wants? Do you think they'll respond to the growing unrest everywhere now, as even white people are more painfully aware of all of these systemic issues that need to be fixed? Like, do you have well, a I mean, prescription? Well, well, I mean, I think it depends on this next election, right? Because everyone, especially on the left, have been talking about this demographic shift where white people become the minority and... Or the plurality, uh, rather. Yeah, just the plurality um, instead of the majority. And, uh, you know, America becomes way more uh, pluralistic. We became, you know, we're probably going to... Just looking at demographics and, and population growth and where that population growth is among what groups of people, you know, we still have immigration, even though Trump's really tried to curtail that. But if, you know, we have a new president, that immigration's going to, or that president's going to continue immigration policies of the past of being open to new people coming from abroad. So, I mean, it, even if Trump wins re-election, this demographic shift that, you know, Democrats have been talking about probably too overly optimistic for the last couple of election cycles, but it is coming, right? So if, if Trump cuts down immigration, Republicans are able to cut down on the amount of people who vote, well, you're really only, you know, pushing that demographic shift to the right uh, an election cycle or two or maybe three, right? So, I mean, it is coming. So I think eventually, I mean, uh, you know, um, uh, What's that guy's, the Republican strategist, David Frum, right? Is that his name? Uh, yeah, he's a political strategist. He used to be Republican, worked with George W. Yeah. Bush. Well, I'm just making sure I'm getting his name right, David Frum. Right, yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he talked about how, you know, normally with two political parties in our, our government and our electoral system, the big tent really is a thing. And, and normally both parties try to just get a little more, you know, they try to have the issues aligned so they can get the most amount of groups of people and, and, you know, issue voters as possible to try to get them to vote for their party. But the Republican Party has really doubled down on an ideology and has been completely resistant to changing any of their beliefs uh, and really just doubling down on trying to get their voters to vote more or more of their voters to vote rather than attract any new voters. And the kind of extreme version of this is, is now Trump, where, like we said earlier, he, you know, he's got majorities of old people, women, uh, people of color, all voting against him and, and young people. So, like, at some point, this, you know, doubling down on an ideology at the expense of vast swaths of voters can only get you so far, and it's become less and less feasible over time. So, I mean, Trump could have a, you know, this awakening... 
uh, among all these political groups of people against Trump could be really prevalent this election. Uh, maybe it's not until the next election, but I mean, I think the identity politics is, is basically where you have one party trying to address real problems among uh, like systematic racism and sexism yeah. in this country. And then the other, you know, what used to be a big tent, but is, you know, shrinking and shrinking every election cycle. They're just doubling down on saying there's nothing to see here. This is just liberal bullshit. You know, these aren't real issues. They're ruining America. And I think the shtick is only going to, you know, you know, best case scenario, Trump gets a reelection. And then, you know, if the Republicans aren't squashed this election cycle, almost certainly the next one they will be, right? Yeah, it's kind um, of interesting I mean, when you think about, like, the trends, right? Because, I mean, yeah. for, for always, like, Texas is like, oh, maybe next election of flipping blue, right? And if Texas flips blue, I mean, Republicans at that point have to win every single swing state. Like, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan... Uh, Florida, Ohio, right? If well, they, Florida right now is up 6.9 points for uh, for Biden. So, I mean, that's 29 electoral votes. Texas is, what, 34 something like 34, that? 34, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, realistically, if Democrats are able to, you know, the, if the Republican tent shrinks a little more and they lose one of those big states, they can't win, right? I mean, Trump kind of lucked out with a couple of states, uh, but, you know, he could have very easily lost 2016, uh, but I mean, this whole trend and phenomena, look back in the, the mid Bush years, right? So George W. Bush, you know, tried to say, look at the growing population of Hispanics, look at the immigration trends, like, we need to make our party more inclusive of Hispanics. So they tried uh, comprehensive immigration reform, you know, they had Democrats willing to go along Democrats, you know, both parties want to solve this problem. But the Republicans, you know, doubled down on the identity politics of whites against, you know, uh, people of color. They were very yeah. anti-immigrant, very yeah. anti-Hispanic. And it's impossible to make a compromise with Democrats because it's not about yeah. numbers for a lot of these hardliners. They don't want any brown people in America. So how do you make a compromise yeah, so with Democrats about what number or which countries to allow in or what process or what amnesty uh, kind of process is allowed? When it's like no amnesty, no brown people, period, you know, like there's literally no compromise with the hardliners. Well, yeah, and that's a that's early identity politics in this political uh, kind of uh, phase in our politics. Right. Because the the Republican elites realize that we need to make our tent bigger. The Hispanic voters might sink us in the future and we need to head that off right. now. And their and their voters just said, nope, not going to talk yeah. about. It. We're not even going to right. discuss this this topic. And this is an interesting idea. I, this is kind of like a pet idea I've had for a long time. But like, obviously, racism is bad. But it's amazing to me that Republicans don't realize the national security implications of immigration. Because you know, Republicans will say, oh, terrorists can come in, blah blah blah. But I think on the opposite, national security in like depends on America growing our population by, you know, 750 million people ASAP, right? Because China and India are growing, right? And all of a sudden now, like even Hollywood, right? Liberal Hollywood is like toning down Chinese, like things China doesn't like and it edits movies before they go to China, right? Because they make so yeah. much money from the Chinese <laughs> movie watching That's market. That's very true. Like, uh, it's just, I mean, it's a matter of time before every industry turns that way, right? The NBA refuses to say anything about uh, China and reprimands coaches who say, who just point out like, oh, maybe the concentration camps in China are a bad idea for humanity, you know? And like, they have to like shut down and apologize to uh, China. 
So like literally uh, the entire world economy is going to go toward India and China, which together have like half the human population, right? What's, what, what share of the human population is America? Is it 5%? But yeah, 5%, something like that. So like just in terms of like our economic future and our political future, like we're not going to be, you know, China and India obviously are going to be the hegemons. And uh, like in the next hundred years, things are going to shift, right? Our, well, our small population. I, I don't think they're going to, they're not going to, I mean, the so America's economy might be kind of smaller than China's right now. You know, it, it's hard to say. We won't know for like two or three years. It's hard to get good data real time for GDP. It's kind of like you look, you have estimates and then you look back and like you, you, you fix your data from the previous couple years. So like this year we'll probably have accurate data for 2016, 2017. But I mean, the fact of the matter is like, I don't think America is ever going to be like that behind China. No, but I'm India. just talking about in They're definitely going to catch up. I'm talking about in a hundred years. I'm not talking about in five years, 10 years. Like, can you imagine a hundred years down the line? When China now has 3 billion people and we're lucky to be like 550 million, you know? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, I was just going to say, you know, like with immigration and stuff, doesn't America want to be the melting pot, right? Like if China and India get so big populationally and now every movie starts showing in China first, right? Every major company wants a headquarters in China to sell to the much bigger population, right? Wouldn't I mean, it's a strength of America that all of the Chinese and Indian people who are smart and ambitious want to come to our cities and our universities and be in our economy and contribute to American culture and be in American movies and music and businesses and things like that, right? Like, we want every, we've talked about this before, we want every Elon Musk around the world to want to move to an American city, right? Even if, you know, even if you get a lot of uh, immigrants that maybe like, you know, don't start businesses and don't, you know, they, they're just like regular people, right? Isn't it worth it to have millions of people move to America if we get every Elon Musk that becomes a wild billionaire success yeah. and gets us to, you know, like literally invents technology that allows us to, you know, populate the galaxy or something like that? Like we want that, right? Well, if you're going to talk about soft power and hard power in a geopolitical sense or even an economic sense, I mean, there's no doubt that identity politics on the Republican side is, is hurting America's soft and hard power. Uh, I mean, the fact that Trump has called pretty much every country in Latin America and the Caribbean and Africa a shithole. You yeah. know, he said, I don't like NATO. I don't, you know, what has Europe done for us? Like NATO's stupid. And that like, you know, but I think I think just in terms of like global trends and, you know, like shifting empires right when did when did greece stop being a world power right when everyone around the world stopped wanting to go to athens and be athenian right and take part there when did the roman empire start uh like really losing power right when people stopped wanting to become roman citizens and stopped wanting to pay tribute to rome well that's a little gross simplification of history but i mean yeah you've got a point that they lose their heart i would say that's the overall theme of history right like uh, like the power of empires and nations. Well, in all those cases you mentioned, well, in, in Greece and Rome, I mean, there were decades of civil wars and bad leadership that kind of went along with it. It wasn't simply that people stopped identifying or wanting to immigrate or become Roman. Yeah, but but like, yeah, but wouldn't you say all of those countries that wanted to start invading Rome and sacking it and plundering it rather than just saying, okay, yeah, we'll be Roman citizens. That's cool. We'll stop rebelling and, you know... 
even even empires like the Mongol Empire, right? The overall theme of the Mongol Empire in world history is that yeah, they killed a lot of people and were horribly destructive and not necessarily the best empire. But when they actually did invade huge swaths of land, there was actually relative stability, right? Because uh, like the Mongol Empire's protection of all the roads and stuff actually had like maybe a greater net cultural diffusion than would have been allowed with all of these independent warring states without any one overarching uh, kind of empire, like with the threat of blood and violence kind of keeping things safe. That's like the hard power approach, but obviously the soft power approach of everyone watching American movies of American people doing American things and listening, like the, the global charts of music being made in LA and New York City, right? And uh, like every new company and you know tech boom and uh, kind of like a viral company that makes the latest and greatest social media companies and things like that being in you know in American Silicon Valley, right? Like the soft power, you know, is that overarching idea of like a soft power empire ensuring everybody wants to be American and that's good for us. Anyway, well. Kind of. I mean, it's complicated. If you're going to talk about geopolitics, I mean, the Chinese government doesn't even view the same world as Europe, the same way as Europe and America does. So it's complicated. I mean, they don't. Right. But but every country around China, right, wants America to have some. Oh, trade well, yeah, that's every true. country uh, that all of these countries exclude China and want to be on our framework to resist China. Right. Vietnam doesn't want to be a vassal state of China Correct, again, yeah. like they were for hundreds of years. So they're willing to even, you know, just kind of like rubber stamp our trade deal. You know, the TPP, Trump like ripped apart, but Obama had like most of the Pacific world, you know, agreeing to it specifically to like have a big fuck you to China. Yeah, um, I think we've gotten a little away from uh, <laughs> the identity yeah. politics. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, it goes back to my theme, the idea that we're like, we should welcome immigration. And that, yeah. you know, even even through the 90s and 2000s, for the longest time, like both, it was a bipartisan idea that our strength was immigration, right? That people would come here and become American rather well, than another, even Western European countries where immigrants go there and aren't, you know, like aren't considered French because they're not white and they don't have ancestors yeah. in French villages, right? Well, this, uh, this conservative move towards identity politics today, I think is very common in American history. I think, um, like you look back at the conservative anti-immigrant populist movements in the 1840s, 50s, 60s, well, not during the 60s, during the Civil War, but I mean, when the Chinese came, there was backlash. When the Irish came, huge backlash. In the 1880s, when a bunch of Southern Europeans started coming and, and people in Eastern Europe, there was a huge backlash against like Poles, against Italians, against Jews. Like it's, it's weird that we are the melting pot in a pluralistic society, but there's always, always a conservative movement against all well, of what I mean, yes argue and no, America but again, stands it, for. Yes and no, because again, it's the conservative element in those times. It wasn't like a bipartisan idea of two parties back in the 1880s against uh, yeah. immigrants, right? Like if you go back to Lincoln's 1864 uh, platform, right? Part of it was granting free citizenship to anybody who moves here, right? Obviously, a lot of the Democrats back in the day when they were conservative racists, they did hate the Irish and they did hate Catholics and Eastern Europeans and Jews and stuff and didn't want them to move here. But well, to I mean, be fair, it wasn't just the Democrats in the South because most most Europeans immigrating after the Civil War were going to the big cities in the North. 
right? Because the South was still very agricultural, agrarian. And like a lot of the South wasn't even developed at all until, you know, the big government of FDR came in and, you know, brought electricity to every community in the South, which wasn't true before that. I mean, you had large parts of the South that weren't even really tied to electric networks and they didn't have access to electricity. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's a very complicated issue and it's not just as salient as it was just a conservative Democrat, you know, hatred towards, uh, immigrants or anything. But I mean, I guess the only thing we're really talking about is there's such a common trend, uh, you know, this populist resistance to immigrants and new people, you know, there's fears that they're, these aren't real Americans. And I, I, I love, I love something Teddy Roosevelt said that, you know, he basically, uh, use this as an example. He, he basically said that if you take an immigrant right off the boat from another country, it's possible that they might be more American in their thinking and ideals of freedom and, and everything America stands for, you know, much more so than an American who's a citizen and has been here for generations, right? So, you know, I think the ultimate goal of identity politics is just to treat everybody as an individual and not have any form of preconceived notion or stereotype or racist or sexist kind of bigotry towards them, uh, which I think is something we're just struggling to do now, right? Because the Republicans and especially the party of Trump have made everything about identity, specifically white identity, uh, specifically kind of a, you know, a lot of people on the right, you know, you see this in the alt-right, they're very anti-woman, right? And, and women on, in the alt-right have complained that, hey, some of these men are very misogynist and it's really hurting the movement. So, I mean, when you talk about identity politics, I mean, this, this has been a very interesting conversation for me in my own thinking, because if you put it in the frame that it's really the Republicans doing this and the conservatives doing this right now, you know, they always talk about how we need to go back to the 1950s when, you know, only the men work, the women just pumped out babies and, and ruled at home. And then, you know, people of color weren't in media whatsoever, you know, and, you know, movies were, you know, rabidly racist. Like, that's like the world they want to go back to. And, you know, this quote-unquote identity politics of the far-left extreme is really, you know, a very widespread movement, as we've, as we've seen with these Black Lives Matter protests, that this is, like, just most people are against this form of identity politics, and they just want to make it better. And, and you know, maybe some people on the far left are taking it a bit too far, but, you know, the ideal is still just making it better, uh, a better life in America for all these groups of people who've clearly been disenfranchised over the 250-year history of our country. Yeah. That's a really good point, that Teddy, uh, Teddy Roosevelt quote, because, I mean, certainly if you love America from afar and want to move there and become American, yeah, you probably, you know, uh, take to heart more of the I alleged ideals of America than people born here. And certainly that's true of, like, Trump, these dreamers, you know, who obviously don't want to have to go back to Mexico, a country they do not know and have never, you know, that saw, like, only really were in when they were, like, fetuses or when they were, uh, you like toddler infants you know um yeah certainly that's kind of a ridiculous idea to think people who are live their entire lives here aren't americans <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah uh yeah well that's about an hour and a half do you have any other yeah. last thoughts no i think that's uh we've kind of talked a lot about here and yeah i think a lot of good ideas that like even this conversation alone is kind of like uh elevated my thinking on some of these these issues well that's good that's what we aim for here at brain milk all right, everybody, thanks for listening to Brain Milk. Check out the Halfway Post for our satire. It's been a little bit uh, since I last posted something, but I'm always writing. 
and thinking up ideas, so check out the backlog. I have new sections on the top of real articles that I've written that aren't satirical, and then I have a section for the best of kind of ideas with like uh, my most popular articles and some of my favorites, some of the crowd favorites with themes like Ted Cruz and Trump and uh, Fox News listed there, so take a look. Uh, I'm Dash McIntyre. And I'm Adrian Pope. And enjoy the guitar solo.